Uh, Today, I want to talk about faithfulness. Faithfulness is one of the supreme attributes, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in business, whether it's in friendships. In Proverbs 20, verse 6, Solomon said, Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find? Who can find a faithful man or a faithful woman? That's typically an attribute we assign to God. We just saying, great is your faithfulness. But again, the question, a faithful person, who can find? Uh, there was a husband who was faithful to his wife, loved his wife dearly, but his wife was a, a jealous woman and always eyed him with suspicion and accused him of bad behavior. He worked at an office and he wore suits every day. When he would come home in the evening, if he had a blonde hair on his suit, she would accuse him of having a fling with a blonde lady in the office. Honey, I'd never, I'd never do that. It would, it'd never be true. I love you. I'm completely, totally faithful and committed to you. He'd tell her this every day. But she was jealous, and if he came home with a red hair on his coat or a brown hair or a black hair, same thing, she'd accuse him. So finally, he wised up. He bought a little lint brush, and he kept it in his car. And uh, one day, he, he brushed himself down, came in. His suit was completely spotless. She examined his suit. There wasn't a hair on it. So he bent down to, to kiss her, thinking that she'd finally be relieved. And she pushed her hand back and said, get away from me. I can't believe it. You're having a fling with a bald woman. Who can find a faithful man? We ask that question every time a sports hero falls or a leader fails. Where is somebody who is faithful? God found a faithful man in Moses. In Numbers 12, verse 7, God says, He, Moses, is faithful in all my house. Nehemiah found a faithful man in a leader by the name of Hananiah in Jerusalem. He described him as a faithful man who feared God more than most faithful. In the New Testament, Jesus spoke about a faithful and wise servant who was able able to assume control over his master's goods. And Jesus used the parable. He said in Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. In Yellowstone National Park, the most famous attraction is a geyser called Old Faithful. It's not the biggest geyser in the park. It's not the most powerful geyser, but it's the biggest tour attraction because of its regularity, its consistency. Of all the attributes that people may possess, be it competence or genius, faithfulness is always the top of the list. As one leader said, the greatest ability is dependability. Well, we're in Daniel chapter 6, and I'm tempted to go through the entire chapter this morning, but we don't have the time for that. We're only going to go through the first 15 verses because our focus is going to be on Daniel, who is faithful. In fact, that's a good word to sum up his life. He was a faithful man. And today, I want to look at his life like a walled city, a city with four ancient walls, walls of faithfulness. Daniel was faithful consistently, Daniel was faithful professionally, Daniel was faithful under scrutiny, and Daniel was faithful spiritually. Over time, he was faithful to his boss, to his country, and to his God. 
And as we read through these 15 verses, what you'll notice is that we're not going to cover the most famous section of him being in the lion's den. But over the last four weeks, our small groups have been going along with this study, and so you'll be able to cover all of chapter 6 in your small groups this week. But let me tell you what's happening here in chapter 6. There's a new king, a new empire, and a new administration. Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty is all gone. The kingdom has fallen to the Medes and the Persians, and we're introduced at the end of chapter 5 to a character called Darius the Mede. Now, we know historically that the real ruler was Cyrus the Persian, but he used Darius as a viceroy and thus the de facto king of Babylon to rule this vast region. What Nebuchadnezzar thought impossible happened. Babylon has fallen and a new empire has arisen just as Daniel had predicted back in chapter 2. The arms and chest of silver, the head of gold is gone. And now the Medo-Persian Empire is fully in control. But our focus isn't on the Medo-Persian Empire. It's not even on Darius the Mede. Our focus is on a character described in verse 4 as being faithful. And that is Daniel. So let's look at our text and let's look at the first couple of verses. And I want you to notice, first of all, that Daniel was faithful consistently. He was faithful consistently. Daniel 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. That word satraps, it's a funny word. We'll explain what it means in a minute. With three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So Daniel's one of three chiefs of staff, administrators, over 120 princes or provincial rulers, territorial rulers. That's what satraps means. So these were regional rulers who all gave an account to three guys in charge, and Daniel is one of them. Now here's what's interesting. At this time, Daniel is around 85 years old. He's been in Babylon for almost 70 years. The captivity is almost up. Remember back in chapter 1, Daniel was the teenager who refused to eat the food from the king's table. And six kings have come, and six kings have gone. And one kingdom has left, and another kingdom has arisen. And Daniel is still there. He's 85 years old, and he's still on the job, faithful, serving the Lord in all of these kings, in two of these nations, one after the other. You see, faithfulness isn't doing the right thing one time. Faithfulness is doing the right thing over and over and over and over, and that is Daniel. When William Carey, the great missionary to India, announced that he wanted to go overseas and serve the Lord on the mission field, his dad wasn't too thrilled. His dad tried to dissuade him and and say, you're not intellectually qualified. You don't know the Indian language. You don't know the history. You don't know the culture. You shouldn't go. To which William Carey responded, but I can plod. I can just put one foot in front of the other and I can plod along. Do you realize the wonderful things that God has done in faithful men and women who just put one foot in front of the other and consistently and faithfully plod along? Here's what I like. Daniel's 85 
and he's not retired. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to retire, but I just admire a guy who's 85. In our culture, we'd probably want to put Daniel in a retirement home. In our culture, we often revere the young, and, and, and unfortunately, we don't give a whole lot of attention to the aged, and that's so unfortunate because that's where the wisdom lies. But here's Daniel. He's still very, very active, still very much at work in this kingdom. Did you know that at age 90, Thomas Edison was still inventing things? At age 90, Frank Lloyd Wright was still drawing? At age 89, Michelangelo painted his most famous work that's still hanging in the Sistine Chapel called The Last Judgment. John Wesley, at age 88, could still preach forcefully and articulately after having traveled over 250,000 miles in his lifetime by horse, preaching over 4,000 sermons and writing volume after volume after volume. Still 88. 88 years old, still going strong. One of my favorite preachers, Bob Russell, turned 79 last week. He retired from Southeast Christian Church 16 years ago, but he hasn't slowed down. He still is faithful, mentoring young pastors, hosting retreats, speaking, writing, faithful, consistently, a long obedience in the same direction. That's Daniel. Also, number two, he was faithful professionally. He was faithful professionally. Look back at verse 2. It says, with three administrators over them, over the, the 120 provincial rulers, one of whom was Daniel. Now, some translations say was number one or the first. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, once again, we see Daniel in a high-ranking government position. Isn't that interesting? No matter which chapter we're in, no matter where we pick up the story, Daniel is seen by his bosses as somebody who is a cut above the rest, and he gets a promotion. In chapter 1, when he was a teenager, we're told that God brought Daniel into favor and goodwill of the chief official. And Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief administrator over all the wise men. And in chapter 5, which we skipped over, Belshazzar made a proclamation that Daniel should be the third ruler of his kingdom. And so it's just amazing that on a professional level, every boss that he had saw his dependability, his competence, and promoted him at every turn. In the New Testament, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think that the best place for that to happen is in the workplace. Because next to your home, that is where you will spend most of your time, is at work. Now, if you live to be 70, and I hope that you live to be much longer than that, if you live to be 70, you will have worked a total combined, consecutive 20 solid years, okay? You will have worked 20 solid years. And some of you are thinking, no wonder I'm so tired. But the point is, that's 20 years to be on a stage at a workplace where people can observe your work, 
what your ethics are like. And that's what they did with Daniel. Daniel's on the job. Now, I have spent all of my adult life working in the church. But when I was in high school and college, I worked for a couple years at Mississippi Reservoir. And I worked at the campground. And would you believe that some of my best years of ministry were at the campground? Because at the reservoir, I had an opportunity to, to witness to people, to share my faith, to be around people day in and day out who didn't go to church, who would characterize themselves as agnostic. It was just a very interesting and a very, very fruitful time. And that experience made me realize that full-time ministry doesn't only apply to pastors. Full-time ministry means serving the Lord no matter where you are. It's being a kingdom worker no matter who happens to be writing the check. So here's Daniel. He's serving the Lord professionally. But what's he doing? Is he preaching? Is he passing out gospel tracts? No. He's working hard. He's doing a good job. The king never said, Daniel, I need you for a special project. Daniel never said, oh, I'm witnessing to a satrap. I'll be there in 10. He never said, no, I'm praying with that governor. No, he was a hard worker. He distinguished himself. I want you to notice that in verse 3, it says, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps. Now, in the original language, the wording there is Daniel was regularly distinguishing himself. In other words, this was his work ethic. He was a hard worker. Whatever you would give him to do, he would do it well. And he would distinguish himself by that work ethic. At the church that I served at in Texas, uh, one of the elders there owned a construction company. And he hired one of our college students to uh, work for him. And the student's job was mainly to, to make supply runs, to deliver things to the work site, uh, jobs like that. And so one day I asked the elder, I, said, uh, how, I asked him how his new employee was doing. And he kind of paused for a moment. I said, uh-oh, what's up? He told me that the young man was consistently late that he was taking an hour to do something that should take 30 minutes. And he was delaying projects, and other workers on the site were, were frustrated and, and noticing how long it took him to do things. And so one day he took him aside and he talked to him, and, and he said, you know, everybody's noticing you're late, what's going on? He said, but boss, I'm having the opportunity to, to witness to our suppliers. I'm telling them about Christ. I'm, I'm praying for them. And, and this elder said to him, he said, listen to me very carefully. Do that on your own dime. You can do that on your lunch break. You can, and I hope that you earnestly will do that after work. When you've clocked out, go back and pray with them. But when this entire work crew is counting on you to be timely so that a job can get done and they can get paid, you need to be dependable. Listen, do you want to be the best witness? Be the best worker. When you're a good worker, people can say, I can rely on him. He's dependable. Why is that? Daniel was that man. He distinguished himself. Not only did he have a good work ethic, but I want you to notice why in verse 3. It says, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, or some translations, his excellent spirit. That's an attitude, not an action. 
It's an attitude, his exceptional qualities. He wasn't the kind of employee that walked around with his head down, always bummed out, always complaining, always griping to HR. Daniel had exceptional qualities. And as I read through this text, I see him thanking God in his prayer during the worst trial of his life. I see his exceptional qualities. When was the last time you thanked your boss? You say, why should I thank them? I'm not getting paid enough. Thank him or her that you've got a job. Gratitude is the attitude that sets the altitude for your Christian life. That's an excellent spirit. Daniel had that work ethic. Daniel had exceptional qualities no matter what job was given to him. There were three men who were out doing a job, doing the exact same task. And a man walked up to one of the three men and said, what are you doing? The first guy kind of grumbled and says, I'm breaking rocks. I'm breaking rocks. He went up to the second man and said, what are you doing? The second man said, I'm earning a living. A little bit better. He walked up to the third man and said, what are you doing? The third guy said to him, I'm building a cathedral. I'm building a cathedral. They were all doing the exact same task, breaking down rocks, building blocks to build a building. One guy saw it as, I'm just breaking rocks. Another guy saw it as, I'm just earning a living. But the third guy saw it as, I'm building a cathedral. That's the big picture. I'm building a cathedral. That's exceptional qualities. So Daniel was faithful consistently. He was faithful professionally. Third, I want you to notice that he was faithful under scrutiny. Look at verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. They just love to butter this guy up. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So you've got 120 provincial rulers, three administrators. And it says in verse 3 that the king sought to set Daniel above them all and put him in charge of all of Babylon. That's what got the jealousy going. It's not just that this guy got a promotion, because we all got a promotion. But he might get a promotion above our promotion. So these guys see this as their opportunity to jockey for position especially now that Daniel is perhaps going to be promoted above them. This is just pure envy, pure jealousy. Anytime you are in a position of authority or a position of power or you're in a prominent position, you will be eyed by the envious and exposed to criticism. That just comes with the territory. No matter what field it's in, they look at you, they envy you, they criticize you. 
That's what they tried to do with Daniel. Now, to flip the coin, look at the Christian ethic. We find it in Romans chapter 12. We're told to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, how many of you think that it's harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than it is to mourn with those who mourn? I do. My hand is up, okay? Now, let me give you an example. If you see somebody hurting, what do you do? You go over to them and you say, man, I'm so sorry. How how can I help you? Man, when you hurt, I hurt. But when somebody rejoices, it can be a lot harder. If somebody comes up to you and says, hey, brother, I just got a $10,000 a year raise. Aren't you happy for me? Aren't you excited? No, are you kidding? Right? Or or say if somebody were to to come to to church next Sunday and they got a, a, a brand new car, they got keys and said, somebody in the church just gave me a brand new car. And you know that the people around you have been praying for a new car. Do you think that they're going to be rejoicing? Well, a few people might go, well, that's really good for you. Lord, where's mine, right? Daniel was promoted. They all were promoted. Now the king was just about to put Daniel above the rest, and they thought, this has got to stop. And they looked at him with envy, and they put him under scrutiny. But here's what you need to notice. is even under scrutiny, Daniel is blameless. He's above reproach. There's no skeletons in his closet. It was Lord Acton who said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here's Daniel. He's in the Medo-Persian Empire in Babylon. He has almost absolute power, yet there's no corruption. Daniel's been a somewhat controversial figure, yet in the midst of all the controversy that's followed him, he's clean. Chapter 1, there's controversy because Daniel said, I'm not going to eat that stuff. I'm not going to defile myself with with your food. I'm Jewish. I keep kosher. Now, that was controversial, but the Lord blessed him because of that. In in chapter 2, controversy followed Daniel as Daniel announced to Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is coming down and another kingdom is going to take over. Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to hear that. In chapter 4, controversy followed Daniel when Daniel said, King, you are very, very prideful, and God is going to humble you. Controversy followed Daniel into chapter 5 when Daniel was the party pooper who in the middle of a drunken feast said, "Uh, King, you're going to be dead in a few hours, and this kingdom is coming down. But in all of that controversy, he distinguished himself above the rest, a cut above faithful. I always admired Billy Graham. In fact, so do most Americans. Since 1955, George Gallup had a list of the 10 most admired men in America. And though Billy Graham was a somewhat controversial figure, and he was under the eye of scrutiny uh, from the media, he was on that list 56 times, more than any other human being. He never made number one, but he was always in the top ten. Because even under scrutiny, there was a faithful man. And Daniel, faithful consistently, faithful professionally, under scrutiny, I want you to notice finally, Daniel was faithful spiritually. I love this in verse 10. 
Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he said, "Uh uh-oh, no. It says he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So it's written in the law, you can't pray. Does Daniel stop praying? Are you kidding? He goes home. He opens up the windows facing west towards Jerusalem because that's his hope and that's his anticipation that one day he's going to return after the captivity. He gets down on his knees and that day he prays three times. You go, man, this guy's like brash. This guy's like in your face. No. It's called just being faithful. Do you notice what it said in verse 10? just as he had done before. Daniel's just doing what Daniel has always done. This isn't new. Three times a day, Daniel did it in the past. Three times a day, Daniel does it now. You say, well, weren't there other options for Daniel? Couldn't he have said, okay, I'll just lay low for 30 days? One month can't hurt. Because if I lay low for 30 days, uh, the law's over, I can go back to praying. Or... He could have said, I'll just pray in private, right? After all, isn't religion a a private thing? He didn't do that. His custom was to open up the windows unashamedly. You know, we get ashamed to to pray before our meal at a restaurant. Daniel opens up the windows to his house, signifying his hope in the Lord in Jerusalem being restored. Three times a day, he gets down on his knees And here's why. If Daniel would have done all of this in private instead of what he had always done, that would be a discredit to his testimony. His enemies, these jealous men, they would have thought, aha, it worked. It worked. We got him to stop. But Daniel believed something, that it's better to die for a conviction than it is to live with a compromise. I'm not going to stop even if you kill me. And i got to tell you, every time that I read through this section, man, I, I get filled with conviction about this verse. Because I think of all the lame excuses that I've had, that we've had, for not being consistent and faithful in our prayer life. Oh, I need my sleep. I exercise at that time. They just dropped a new show on Netflix. I'm just so busy at work right now. But then I think about those faithful people in our own church. I think of the the multiple groups of women that I'm aware of that that meet together weekly for the purpose of prayer. 
who pray for our church, who pray for you, who pray for our leaders. I think of our BC Cares team, who prays for people who find themselves in difficult situations, whether it's a health diagnosis, whether it's marriage problems, whether it's a loss of a loved one or an addiction. They'll call, they'll pray, they'll visit, they'll send cards of encouragement. Just as he had done before. Just as he had done before. Who can find a faithful man? Who can find a faithful woman? I pray that God will find you and me faithful. And it just takes plotting, you know? Just one foot in front of the other, just being faithful. Getting up, doing the same thing, a long obedience in the same direction. Let me tell you a story as we close. It's a true story about a man named George Bolt. George Bolt managed a small little hotel in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It wasn't much, but he was a good manager. One evening, a couple walked through the lobby and asked for a room. George Bolt said, the rooms are full. There's no vacancy. There's not a room here. They were just about to leave, but George knew that there were no no open rooms in, in any hotel in the city of Philadelphia. Travel was up, visitors were thick, there wasn't a single vacancy. And George knew that if they left his hotel, that they wouldn't find a room anywhere. So George said, listen, take my room. I'll sleep out on the couch, just take my room. They said, no, 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 we we can't do that. He said, no, insist. If you don't take my room, you won't find one. So they took his room, they spent the night. They got up the next day. They were checking out of the hotel and they went to the front desk and The elderly gentleman said to George Bolt, you know, sir, you are a good manager. You ought to manage the biggest, the finest hotel in the entire world, and I'm going to build it for you one day. George said, okay, yeah, thanks, sure. God bless you. Have a good day. A few years later, George received a letter in the mail. It was from an elderly man in New York. It was that same man. He reminded George of the story and asked George to come to New York and visit him for a few days. Inside the envelope was a ticket so that he could get there. So George gets to New York. He's taken to a a corner in downtown Manhattan, and he looks up at this big, beautiful hotel. And the elderly gentleman looks at him and says, I'd like for you to manage this hotel. The elderly gentleman's name? William Waldorf Astor one of the wealthiest men in America. He had just built the Waldorf Astoria, one of the finest hotels ever built. You see, that elderly gentleman knew that if George could be faithful in managing a little hotel in Philadelphia, and he cared for his guests in such an exceptional way, that he would do a good job managing the Waldorf Astoria. So he was given the job. George Bolt became the manager of the Waldorf Astoria. Does it sound familiar? If you're faithful in the little things, I will put you in charge of many things. Be a faithful worker. Be a faithful husband. Be a faithful wife. Be a faithful friend. Work hard. Show exceptional qualities. Only God can work in that. But I figure the more that we follow a faithful God, some of that ought to rub off on us. Let's pray together.
God, great is your faithfulness. God, you have shown us what it looks like to be faithful. God, your character is unchanging. You are always loving. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, you are faithful in sending Jesus to this earth, and he modeled what faithfulness looked like. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And so, God, we follow after the example of Jesus, striving to be people of integrity, being people who are dependent, who are reliable. And we don't do it, God, to, to muster that up ourselves. It's not our faithfulness that saves us, but it was Jesus' faithfulness that saves us. He was faithful and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, God, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, would you transform our hearts? Would we be faithful men and women in every season, in every situation? Would we be people who can be counted on? And that when people look at our lives, they, they, they would see that it's so different from the world that they would ask, why is that? Why do you live in that way? And we would be able to tell them it's because of Jesus Christ. And we would open up conversations about the gospel. God, I pray that you would find us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.